beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. Thanks for asking. It's a, it's a great day and uh, I'm really excited for uh, the guests we have on today. Yeah, just uh, it's something we haven't talked about yet on the podcast and uh, I'm looking forward to you introducing them. How are you doing, Sean? I know uh, this is a new day for you with a lot of things going on in your life and uh, you're coming to, uh, what do you call it, a retirement? <laughs> Talk about my retirement. Um, yeah, you know, it's making a career shift. You can call it that. It's been uh, eight years of working in uh, one industry. Uh, you know, I've been working in the manufacturing operations field for eight years, learned a lot, and I think it's just time to move on and focus on a lot of other things, including this podcast, which is uh, we're really happy for it because I'll have some time to kind of work on some new episodes or release some more than we usually do. Um, you know, and a lot of different things that we can do now that I have a little more free time. So excited for that. Yeah. And if you've uh, been listening and you're a regular listener, thank you. Uh, we appreciate that. And uh, you probably know us. We're pushing out probably two episodes a week. And that's just because Sean over here has some free time, extra free time. And so it's great. And then we're, we're going to try to do that every so often, um, give you an extra episode or, or probably like once or twice a month. And as we move forward, because we just have a, you know, a lot of people want to come on. And as we always say, if, if you know someone who has a great story and a great dream that they want to share, like feel free to email us uh, to come on the podcast. And so if you're new to this podcast, thank you for tuning in. We always appreciate your, your tuning in, listening to the stories people share. And it gives us sort of, you know, a fan base to continue doing what we're doing because, you know, like it's a lonely road just talking to one person, but we know there's so many people listening. So it keeps us going and we know the feedback we get is that it's pretty good and you guys are learning some stuff. So that's the whole point of this, uh, this podcast. I know Sean probably wants to shout out a couple of countries. He's just going to do that. <laughs> uh, no, I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your week, you know, taking some time out to listen to a 45 minutes to an hour long podcast. You know, we hope it's entertaining. We've had a lot of listeners across the world. Uh, shout out to Turkey. All of a sudden, Turkey started listening. So shout out to that country. Um, all across the United States and Canada, you know, we love California, New York, Missouri, uh, all these states that are uh, kind of tuning in and really, really appreciate all that. So without further ado, let's get into today's podcast. We have on with us Rami Shami. And Rami has been serving with hospice palliative care for close to 30 years now. With his humble beginnings as an in-home visiting hospice volunteer, he has exercised his passion for palliative care in such capacities as senior leadership, volunteering coordination, training quality, risk management, community outreach, policy and procedure writing, and program development. So he's had a wide array of experience with palliative care. And having served his tenure with 12 different hospices from across Ontario, Rami presently enjoys applying his experience and expertise within the provincial governing body of hospice, Hospice Palliative Care Ontario, as a surveyor for the hospice accreditation program. Rami is also involved with an innovative and exciting project that will increase accessibility of hospice care services to individuals who are homeless or vulnerably housed and living with a life-limiting illness. As a manager, residential volunteer services of Journey Home Hospice, a hospice for the homeless, Rami is honored and humbled to help facilitate the growth and development of programs and services within the multi-dimensions of hospice palliative care locally and internationally. Rami, welcome. Gentlemen, I have my sincerest apologies. If I had known you were going to read that on air, I would have cut that to two lines. <laughs> It's okay. It's, it's I'm uh, I'm honored and I'm 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 very honored to, and privileged to be uh, to be with you folks. I mean, but you know, you said something. I think it was you, Sean or Joshua. This is the first time that you folks and all the work you do and the tremendous uh, information with the podcast. Is, correct me if I'm wrong. This is the first time you folks talk about dying. Well, we talked about like people sitting with uh, the dying if it was their family member, but as the first person who's actually I think worked with the dying. Oh, okay. Like okay, yourself, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Won't be the last. No. <laughs> no. No, probably not. But you're the first, so uh, we got high expectations for you. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thank you for having me on, uh, on, no, your, uh, on your podcast. It's amazing. Thank you for coming on. Uh, we've met when I was doing a uh, workshop, and we just sort of you know, clicked. And uh, you're, you're, you're such a cool guy with uh, such a world of knowledge to you that, you know, just in the, the couple of conversations we've had, 
you know, I learn a lot. And so I'm hoping to learn some more here today. And I think it's also a testament of when you do talks and you you do these workshops like, like I do, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. And some of those people are just like amazing, amazing people that, you know, like this is the gift of grief dreams where, you know, I can like do this work, but I'm making really cool friends and learning about people's lives that I probably wouldn't have met um, if it wasn't for this, this topic. So, yeah. So, so welcome to the podcast. And I want to actually start off with when I, when Sean read the uh, four page bio of yours, <laughs> in chapter one, it said uh, something about um, you being a volunteer and in-home visiting hospice volunteer. And I'm really curious as to why you did that, because it's not something people go out of their way to do most of the time, um, helping others or even sitting with the dying. It's probably the last thing on people's list of things to do um, during the week. So what was there something that prompted that or like, why did that even occur? Joshua, I... I... I wish I can give a, a like um, a clear, concise answer. I mean, that's almost three decades ago. What I will tell you is I do believe in destiny. I do believe in divine intervention. I do believe in karma. I do believe in something in that to that effect, because I'll tell you, man, like I was, I was 18, 19 years old. I wanted to get into medicine. I was doing two other volunteer jobs at a Credit Valley Hospital Pediatrics and St. John Ambulance. And uh, I was literally looking through the Mississauga News just for other volunteer uh, engagements that are a little bit maybe more stimulating, more engaging, more, more enticing. And there was this full page ad said, do you want to help the dying? And I'm like, heck yeah. And I knew from that moment when I looked at that newspaper article that that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life subconsciously. I mean, I tried to get away from it so many times because as a young man, you know, my family didn't understand. My friends didn't understand. They said, why aren't you chasing girls? Why aren't you chasing cars? Why don't you just go out and playing in traffic? What are you doing? You know, sitting with people who are, who are, three times your age talking about pain, suffering and, and their impending death. And 30 years later, I can, I can, I can understand it now what the draw was. It's, it's authenticity. It's life. It's, it's really a self-reflective process of recognizing what's meaningful in our living and what's the most guaranteed aspect of our life is that it will end. It seems like it's rare to be that young and kind of stumble upon the, you know, it's one of the most important things for us to uh, learn about and talk about in life at an early age. And also thinking about that, you also kind of break through some stereotypes that are going to carry with men in the care industry, if you will, you know, compassion industry. Can you talk about that a little bit? What's what's it like being or in a field mostly dominated by women? You know, I wasn't going to touch that with a 10 foot pole because <laughs> it's a sensitive, touchy topic, folks. I mean, like, um, you're absolutely right. And, and there's, different, there's different schools of thought, let's be honest. There's different schools of thought. I don't subscribe to the notion that men aren't sensitive enough to do this work. Um, I, I pride myself at being either developed a great deal of sensitivity and compassion and empathy and, and intuition in the line of work that the work has actually or the service has actually infused in me and, and developed in me. Or maybe I just had it innately. Who knows? I was 19 years old and, and, and God only knows what what uh, what skills I had, but there's I've I've met a great deal of men in the field that have that that quote unquote side to them, but oftentimes we're not nur- it's not nurtured. You know, my father was was a pretty hard nosed uh, gentleman, and he wanted me to go out and shoot birds and ducks, and he didn't want me to sit with a dying, and, and there was a bit of phobia to it. Um, my friends all played hockey, and they were rough and tumble, and you know jocks, and they couldn't understand it. They couldn't, they couldn't conceptualize it. And and I'm not sure if it was because they didn't have it in their families and upbringing that this is an aspect of our life, you know, or that there's an opportunity to do this, um, or if they just in their in their in their makeup in their innate you know generation didn't resonate with it. I'm not really sure. I just know a lot more men are coming to the field now, maybe because it's permission, maybe because some of us broke ground. You know, at 19 years old, I was the youngest and the only male for many years because we advocate and we, we, we speak strongly at both those aspects. And it's so, so needed. Oftentimes, you know, without being too, uh, too sexist, I mean, men who are dying would like another man to sit with them because they, they maybe feel a different comfort level. They're not as embarrassed. They have pathology around their sexual organs. They don't want anybody to see they want male caregivers. There's a lot more males coming into the nursing field that can provide that, that care. So I, don't, I, I can't really generalize where the, the stereotypes or the, the, the boundaries or the blockades were, were deconstructed. Um, but I'm happy they are because it's definitely a service. And then the reciprocal, like you mean, now I'm, I'm a single dad. 
And it's not, you know, the mother of my child that's teaching my daughter about death and dying and compassion and sitting with, uh, with, with the elderly or the sick, with the, with the, you know, the, the fragile. It, it's myself, and, and it's a good role model for my daughter because then she sees men can be vulnerable, men can be gentle, men can be tremendously sensitive and intuitive and compassionate and, and can be phenomenal caregivers. Some of the best men I know or some of the best caregivers I know are, are male. Yeah, and you make some you make some very great points. Um, it just makes me think of you know my cousin. He's a he's a nurse, and I think he got into that field because you know we come from a family of nurses, and so he's seen that around his society, his family. But if he had didn't, if he hadn't have seen that, maybe he wouldn't be as inclined to be a nurse. But I think I think you know moving forward in society, this is great to see. It's great to see more men in in women-dominated industries and more women in male-dominated industries. And that's where you get that balance. And, and, and it's like you said, it's some, some people want to hear uh, about grief from a woman and a man. So it, it's amazing to hear that. And I just wanted to talk to you about that right away because I think that's the first thing I noticed. But, you know, on that point, you know, just <laughs> I must preface this because the, all my mentors have been female. Right. So all the incredible women that I've studied and, and learned about end of life care and, and, and death and dying have all really been women until very recently when I started studying with some people from San Francisco and New York and what have you. So it, it, the, that aspect of it has been pioneered, really, by by women. And now, fortunately, you, know, you, you spoke about nursing. <laughs> I remember maybe uh, almost I mean, 35 years ago, whatever. I'm telling my parents I wanted to become a nurse. And my father was very clear. He says, men don't become nurses. Men become doctors. I said, oh, okay. So I went into medicine and I hated it. You know, there's such a, it's just, especially back then, medicine is, is different. It's a different model of engagement when it comes to uh, patient-centered care. And I regretted it, I, I, that I never completed my, my nursing. I mean, I get pushed here and there to go back and do it now, but I'm, I'm so deep in hospice palliative care and, and all its facets and domains that, We'll see. And I got a six-year-old, so that makes it kind of challenging. Absolutely. It takes, look, it takes a strong individual to be able to sit with someone else, talk about grief, talk about loss, and walk someone through that. And women have been doing it uh, amazingly. And so if we can learn something from that, I think that's that's amazing with you know more men in the field. Can I, can I expand on that? I mean, um, on just the word strength, uh, I hear it a lot. You know, I mean, people find out I work in death and dying, and they're like, oh, you must be such a strong person. And if I can just sensitively just rearrange the, that word, and the strength isn't actually as it's perceived by society. It's actually the strength is in the vulnerability. You know, if we, are, we can be in touch with our vulnerability and our, and our fragility, that's the strength. You know, it's not the common notion of strength. That's, that's the true strength and groundedness that brings us to this field. And that's, the, that's what the field gives back to us is to, you know, learn about our vulnerabilities and create a safe space with which we permission ourselves to express those vulnerabilities in front of people that we care for. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Thank you for pointing that out and, and talking about that. So how did you cultivate that? Like, I'm guessing because you said you had some ups and downs um, learning your way through um, sitting with people who are dying. And so how did you cultivate that in yourself? Because I'm guessing you do a lot of training with hospice uh, volunteers, so you'd have to train others. So what is it that that happened with you and how did you train others to sit with the dying? I appreciate that word, cultivation. It, it is definitely a cultivation. And the cultivation uh, happens almost by osmosis in the work in the service itself. The work in the service itself teaches us how to do the work. And oftentimes the education and training is, does not, and I tell people, because I've trained across the province, and, and the, the training and the education itself is nowhere, it's just a stepping stone. It's kindergarten in comparison to the learning we, we are reserved in the field itself. The cultivation is really in, in the pre, is just being in the presence and the vulnerability to receive the teachings from the people we serve. They teach us uh, how to serve them. They teach us how to actually recognize the, the impact of death and dying in the self-reflective process. All we got to do is just, you know, be in a sort of, and I love this term, in a culturally humble way to receive the teachings from the people that, that care for us. And then I take that because I've sat with hundreds of people and then I, I share that with others. But really, you know, in essence, I only facilitate knowledge that's been bestowed upon me by people who are dying. And that's the beauty of it. That's why I love this work so much. Like, you know, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the gift is that, you know, I, I'm a transfer, a, a conduit, a medium of information from people 
who have left us and, uh, and, and, you know, in, in multitude of ways. And you take that knowledge and you share it with others. And that's why it's so impactful is because others can relate to it because it's real. It's not textbook. It's not lecture. It's people's lives. And people's lives and people's stories are what impact others. Just ask anybody that watches, you know, a soap opera. So when people like say like you're very self-aware and I think people go into the field not really knowing, you know, like they don't really know themselves going in. And so what is it like when when you're training people or, or you're having people that are like sitting with a dime for the first time, what do you see in the volunteers that changes along the way? So let me uh, let me let me blow that up. All right. Because the the ed- like the education isn't just for volunteers. In fact, it's easy to bestow it on volunteers. You know where it's hard to bestow it? It's no, you know where it's hard to transfer it? Into clinicians and especially nurses and physicians. There you have very strong constructs coming out of school of who and what they do and how they do it. And, and that's where it becomes challenging to, to, to bring the knowledge and the education to. And it comes from that depth of self-awareness. The fertility of the ground is in the self-awareness and the almost recognition of their own mortality before you can actually teach them about death and dying. So a lot of the work that I do is self-reflective practice, is narrative practice to bring clinicians and, and volunteers and managers and board and directors to a recognition of their own uh, mortality so that they can actually just create a fertile ground to learn more about death and dying. Otherwise, you know, there's a great quote by Mr. Michael Murphy. Otherwise, it becomes too anxiety-provoking to teach people about death and dying if they haven't even looked at it themselves. So you said a good word there. You got a couple of words, Joshua, in terms of self-reflection. Most of the work in teaching I do is about developing uh, uh, our self-reflective practice, to getting in touch with our own in- innate mortality and how we feel about it and the reactions to it before we actually get into teaching about death and dying, like pathology and shortness of breath and you know all that jazz. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I know like I uh, am a big uh, supporter of Ram Das, and he always said that in India, I guess, that one of the spiritual practices that he had to deal with or, or do is sit with you know a body that's decomposing. Um, and so sitting with death, and that's what you're saying, sitting with mortality and what it is can actually do a lot for you as you move forward. But you know, our culture would really, unless you go to a hospice, it's hard. Or if you have a you know, someone dying around you. But for the most part, if someone starts to die, you, a lot of people just put them in a home or put them somewhere where they can't see them. So it's very, I think it's hard to get that teaching. And so it's nice how you realize something about the power of sitting with the dying and you've cultivated something in yourself that you said like school can't give you. Like this is something that the people who have died passed on to you. I, I, I love that. I really do. And I haven't sat with anyone dying yet. Uh, one day, I guess uh, I do hope to, to do that because there is something beautiful that I keep hearing from people that I want to sort of witness myself. And I think you're right in the sense of, I think when people die, they become the most true because there's, there's nothing left. Um, There's no faces left to sort of portray to the world. You're dying, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing left. So you can be yourself and there's, there's nothing better than seeing someone for who they are and for them to witness that they're okay. Like they're, they're allowed to be that and you're accepting of who they are. Uh, along the way too. So, man, that, that's so cool. I, I love the work that you're doing and, and who you've become because of it. Yeah, I remember you sent me that message. You remember? I mean, I, you know, <laughs> in your, in, in, when you do something for a long period of time, you don't quite recognize how it changes you because you just become part of it, right? But I want to just come back to a point when you spoke about Ram Dass. Yeah, there is one thing to look at a decaying body. There's quite another to walk into someone's home, walk into their room as a caregiver, and see the gentleman sitting there with ascites, like their belly just distended three times the size, with a belly button that's coming out three inches, it's with a throttle sack the size of a small beach ball, and he looks at you and he goes, I suffer like a son of a bitch. So a lot of times, folks, like a lot of times, it's not just the dying aspect, it's the suffering, right? To sit in pain with somebody and recognize your own helplessness and still be a constant companion, that's the beauty, that's the gift. Right? That's, that's the piece where uh, um, authentic, pure love and empathy is drawn out of us. I, I advocate a lot for people to get into the field of death and dying, but not so much the death part, but the dying part. And why? It's because if you want to really get in touch with your essence, your spirit, 
your depth of compassion and empathy. If you want to become a better human being, go sit with somebody in pain at their advocacy and at their self-direction and at their autonomy and, and bear witness to suffering when you can't do anything about it. And when you can't do anything about it, you'd learn how to be present and, and, and communicate with somebody in that depth of love and empathy and not try to change the direction out of suffering. And then you could be with suffering. And if you could be with somebody else's suffering, you have a great better chance to be as one with your own suffering and have self-compassion for your own suffering. Well said. Yeah. Wow. And so when you're saying that, I'm like, oh, that's interesting because I know because Jade, who's the guest host on the podcast, she has had a, a child. And, you know, like when they got teeth coming in, they're crying and you got to sit with that. There's nothing you can do. And it's sort of like the same thing. It's like sitting with someone. So birth um, would have its own little gems because you got to sit with your baby. It can't talk, really, you know, talk to you. Um, but you know it's in pain. There's really nothing you can do except just hold it and be there for it. And same thing with sort of the dying is you you can't they're they're dying. There's nothing you can do except provide that space um, to know they're not alone. So that's very very interesting. Except the difference is, and and this is where I have a more strong advocate when it's anonymous, Joshua. When it's anonymous, when it's not your baby, not your mom, not your dad, not when it's anonymous, it changes the landscape. Because it's expected and there's an innate biological compassion and love for something that's, you know, a part of you or in your, in your circle of, of familyhood. But when it's anonymous, when it's a completely separate human being, different race, gender, different gender, social economic background, political ideology, blah, blah, blah. That's when we get in touch with an aspect of ourselves that we know we never had. And that's, that's what I love about this stuff. So you ask what brought me to it. You get hooked, man. Like it's, it's, you get hooked. You get hooked into the authenticity of the work from a very young age. You just, you're like, wow, somebody's letting me sit. Like how many of us are anonymously allowed to go into somebody's birthing? Nobody, right? Nobody says, hey, you're somebody on the street. Come and sit with my birth. But we're asked anonymously to go and sit in people's dying and listen to their stories and listen to their pain and listen to their life and their regrets. I mean, is there any bigger, bigger gift than that? Not in my mind. Or maybe I'm just weird. Oh, yeah, you're speaking some truth here. And it seems like we've kind of painted, you know, life as a positive thing, death as a negative thing. And I think that's where we get in trouble because it's not as it's not as cut and dry like that. And, you know, there's still a lot of mystery and kind of stuff around death. And we've kind of uh, compartmentalized that, you know, death becomes something that we're kind of put into a box. And but it, it's just like life, a part of everything. It's all mixed in together. So the other day, to a lesser extent, I was thinking about this. I've had back issues in the past. I'm fine right now, perfectly healthy, not feeling anything. But I thought about what it felt like to have those issues when I was in pain, walking around, you can't even move without, you know, a little uh, pain going through your back, getting up is an issue. And it made me feel so much better. And it made me appreciate where I am now without the pain, you know, and, and I think that's an important thing. Sitting with death, being around death really helps you understand and appreciate life a little better. Before you die. And Before that's an exa- amazing example. If we take that, which, and I, I love Victor Frankl has this amazing quote. He says, you know, act as if you've made this mistake before and do it right this time. Like you get a second chance before you actually make the mistake. The same thing about life. Well, if we, if we, we think about, our end, if we have a self-reflective kind of, you know, grounding in what is going to happen to us, that can change our daily life if we know that it's going to end. And I, I'm sure of that. I'm, I'm, I'm not for everyone. I mean, we have mental health, we have all this other stuff, but you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's, that's the work. That's what's the draw to the work is that if we can teach this to people, I mean, I've sat with so many people, uh, Sean and Joshua, is that that's what they tell me, right? I'm not, you know, pulling this out of my my ears. This is what they tell me. They're like, you know, think before you act. And and although it's such a cliche, but no, it's like plan your life out, know what's meaningful to you, know what's important to you, know what's, you know, before you end up like me. And and that's what I learned from all these years and sitting with people. And that's what keeps bringing me back, especially now in this, this new demographic that I'll be serving. I'm so honored and privileged to be a part of this, this initiative. It's just, you know, it just takes the game to another level. Yeah. So can you talk a little about the new initiative and working with the, the homeless and, you know, like, and how is that different from the other people you've served in the past? Well, um, the demographic is, is different because they, it's interesting because 
they're getting attention and they're getting care because they're dying. Right. I mean, for the most part, we walk by the homeless every day and we don't pay them much attention. We might give them a couple of quarters here and there. But this demographic actually has a life limiting illness. And for the first time, many of them in their in their lives, or if not, I mean, they all have a story. You'd be astonished who ends up on the street, guys. You'd be astonished. You know, we are all a step away from being homeless. So I have to, you know, I have to tell you that. But anyway, so these in, these individuals, um, they are they are in shelter systems and they are in the street and they are uh, they are homeless and they're dying. They're dying of life limiting illnesses and comorbidities. And finally, they're getting some care and to provide somebody a shelter and a home and love and compassion and good pain management, good symptom management when they haven't had it in years and years and years, and they finally get it before they die, in my mind, is the highest honor. Like, yeah, you know what? You've had a, a, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your show, but, you know, you've had a shitty, shitty time for the last 10, 15 years. We're not going to have your death. We're gonna, that's not a swear we're word. <laughs> we'll allow, we'll <laughs> allow that word. <laughs> well, we're going to help you possibly have a death that is more dignified. I wouldn't say a good death because only individuals, only you know, us as personalities can define a good death, but we're going to help you have maybe a better death, a dignified death, a more compassionate, empathetic death. And, and that, that for me speaks volumes. I mean, that's the purest form of compassion. When we, when we take people who are so, um, so the, the most vulnerable in our society and give them something that not only have they not had in life, that they are going to have in their dying. And that's very exciting for me. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be a part of a team with Dr. Nahid Dasani, who is just a, a remarkable, remarkable individual. Young man. You think I'm young and I had it going on when I was 19. You should see this guy. He's in his 30s. He's a palliative physician and he's rocking the show. Like he's really set the bar in terms of hospice palliative care. And there's a team of people. And we've we got this four-bed uh, hospice as a pilot in Toronto that's opening this month. And then hopefully in a year we'll have a 10-bed and the whole country is kind of watching us to see what we do because they all want to get on that, on that, on that train and start serving the most vulnerable. Wow, that's uh, it's amazing. I'm, I'm glad you know someone's uh, trying to to do this to say it can be done, and pioneering this in the field. So how would the homeless know about it? Because you think like one of the one of the biggest things is marketing, and and so how would how do they come to contact you? Is it that they just go to the hospital and then that's how you, you find them? So you know what happens when a homeless man or woman goes to a hospital? <laughs> no, I Right don't. away, 90% of the time, they are prejudiced and biased against. And they're sat in the, in the waiting room for not hours, but days until they give up and they leave. They're assumed to be drug addicts. They're assumed to be dirty. They're assumed to have bed bugs. They're assumed to be inhumane many, many, many times. So they actually don't come to emergency rooms. They die in the street, right? They don't want to come to doctors. So we have to go to them. So we have a team that actually goes out into the field. There's about nine or 10 doctors. They go out into the field and a nursing team and, and now a volunteer team. They're going to go out in the field and especially under the direction of Dr. Dasani to find these individuals to even try to advocate for their well-being and, and health care because a lot of them are undocumented. To go to the shelter systems because sometimes the referred the shelter will call up uh, the programs and the one particular program two particular programs actually one is the the kind of like the overarching organization of the other which is uh, inner city health associates ICHA and then there's PEACH which is palliative education and care for the homeless which is actually the clinicians that go in the streets go in the shelter system find these individuals provide them with care meet them you know meet them in the pizza pizza and see if they can you know provide some some advocacy and some referral to uh, some services, and now we have a place that hopefully we can, you know, have them uh, have them be admitted. Do you find because they've been betrayed so much from society, um, and you know, they said like the hospitals are people resistant if they are dying to even come just because they just don't trust the the process or the system? Well, let's let's again once uh, once again let's let's blow this up. I mean, society itself doesn't want hospices in their backyard. We had such a shit show here trying to get a hospice in Mississauga because the communities were like, not in my backyard. We don't want screaming ambulances bringing dying people to our backyard, which is a complete fallacy and, and a, so phobia driven. If general society or mainstream society has a phobia of end of life care and, and hospices, could you imagine the homeless who already are in a mistrustful state have already, 
not been cared for and alienated and abandoned by the system? Absolutely. They're like, who are you? Why are you coming to take care of me now? I'm dying now because I'm dying? Absolutely. There is definitely that, that mistrust. So it begins with the building of the trust. It begins with building of a relationship in, a, in, a, in an environment where it doesn't necessarily foster relationships. They all have their own, you know, possibly their own makeshift families and their own entrusted networks. And some have, you know, substance use issues. And building that trust just to come and give, help them um, access end-of-life services is very, very challenging, but actually also very rewarding when it works. You make some amazing points, and this is such a fascinating thing for us because, again, you have these individuals who are, you know, essentially outcasted in one way or another. You know, if not, if not directly, indirectly. You know, we we put them, uh, you know, outside of the tribe, outside of the community, and said, "Go ahead and live your life as a homeless person, whatever that means." And we don't even know. We we don't understand. These are individuals from our society, you know, and you're granting them the dignity of of dying with someone else around, with someone who cares for them. That's an amazing service that you're providing for this community. I just got to say, I never knew people are so phobic for it. You know, like I'm thinking about it. I'm like, that's great. It's amazing. You know, like every town should have one. But people have different views. And like when you're telling me this stuff, I, I'm shaking my head saying, are you seriously? Like they like protest, like putting a hospice uh, with like within their district. I think that's just crazy. <laughs> it's um, it's disappointing actually, because it reflects on societal values. We throw billions at cure and perceived cure. I mean, it's, I think a lot of it is, is, is not necessarily cure, curative, but perceived cure and so little on compassion and, and dignity and end-of-life care. I mean, hospices have to raise, on average, 50% of their operating budgets, which is ridiculous considering the, you know, the, the average hospital and its billion-dollar budget is, is you know, for the most part, covered and they fundraise above and beyond uh, their their needs. Whereas hospices have to fundraise for their needs just to keep the doors open to help people achieve dignified deaths. And that's that's just wrong, wrong, absolutely. We've uh, we've disenfranchised death. We've just disenfranchised dying. I mean, until recently, uh, we've we've made it somebody else's problem, and now we're disenfranchising the the chronically ill. I mean, 90% of long-term care facilities are filled with individuals who are palliative. And in the next, I mean, I'll tell you, in Mississauga, in the next year, you'll have 4,000 people dying in long-term care facilities. So it's, or uh, somewhere around those numbers. So there's, there's a tremendous need for awareness and education and, and, uh, and, and what have you with respect to uh, uh, hospice palliative care and end-of-life services. Maybe there even needs to be a societal shift in terms of how we even I mean, this is just a North American phenomenon, folks. This is, this is not worldwide. You go down to Mexico, South America, the Middle East, Israel. It's not like that in the world over. This is a North American phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are other cultures in the world who look at taking care of dying a little bit differently, well, a lot differently, you know, a, more of a community effort, more of a, you know, part of a family type of uh, system. And that leads me to the next question of, of, what would you like to see happen in the future? What's, what's the goal here? Where, how can we change and, and make death look at it differently? Well, I'm not going to put a plug, but I'm going to tell you, I, I now, out of, out of years, uh, out of the years I've been in, in this field, I've taught so many clinicians and volunteers and you know all that, but I, I think it, there needs to be education for the general public. So I have my own course now, and I think we should bring that, you know, and in, in, bring that knowledge, that experience, that, um, you know, that, uh, how can I say, that authenticity of life and death to schools, to classrooms. I mean, we teach them sex ed. Why don't we teach them death ed, right? Why don't we teach them long-term illness ed? My, my kid, my, my, my child, I take her to hospices. She, she uses the words death and dying gentlemen how many times you hear kids or even adults say passed on transition gone to a better place why don't we say death and dying why don't we say you know what what actually happens to us why don't we teach our kids you know if they're if they want to learn they spend more time learning about candy crush than they would about what's going to happen to them in in 30 or 40 years right 70 to 80 percent of us are going to die of a life-limiting illness let's teach people let's teach them how to live Uh, and and you know I, i could say this is a buddhist practice but it's not it's a it's a it's very much a humanity. Let's let's teach what happens to us. What are we all about? What happens to, to our to these bodies? You know, to our lives. To everything we absolutely everything we accumulate, 
You know, let's, let's bring that into our schools. Let's start teaching that in a very young age. If we're going to teach them how to put on a condom, let's teach them how to put on a, a, a catheter. I'm, I'm kidding on that part because, you know, there's some aspects to that. But let's teach them what, what happens to us and what's important and, and the gift of being with our elderly who are in long-term illness or chronic illness. And now, actually, folks, I, I shouldn't even say that because, you know, the majority of people dying of life-limiting illnesses are between the ages of 50 and 65. Like, it's hitting the younger populations, hitting the baby boomers. The, the, uh, the, the, our seniors are living longer and healthier. So I would love, love to bring this education into, uh, into, into mainstream uh, public schools and, 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 and private schools and all that, into the school system for sure, into our education, because that is life education. Yeah, I have to agree with that. You know, people talk about uh, death being the, one of the top three fears that people have in life, and yet they're not trying to battle that. And I'm trying to overcome that. It's just like, yeah, well, that is what it is. People fear death. And the other great point is, you know, exposing children to this, these, these concepts, you know, it's look, if you start them young, start them at that age and, and give them the right information, they're going to be set up as really competent adults, balanced adults who have a good understanding of death and dying in the process and are compassionate around it. So, you know, that again, I, I, totally support that you know start them young and, and educate ourselves and you know if i could just speak to something in there man um just something i want to just demystify something and when we ask people point blank the general public you know what's the fear they say death but oftentimes it's not death that they're afraid of it's dying right when they're afraid of death if we really look at what aspects of the fear instills them it's actually most commonly it's the fear of pain and the fear of being forgotten, fear what's going to happen to their family, fear what's going to happen, you know, in an, in an afterlife. So, you know, if we start to truly look at and, and build some resiliency and, and awareness and self-reflection, we go back to that point in people's fears, then we can serve to demystify the phobias regarding death and dying. Then we don't just shun it, right? Let's, let's, let's not just talk about it. Let's really look inside and see what are we truly afraid of and then build the constructs of our life to support those fears. Wow, it's uh, I'm learning so much, and you know I know because of time and stuff, uh, we can't we could, we got to have you back on to talk more because you have so much information. You've learned so much along the way. Uh, you did mention very quickly about a, a plug for your your workshops. Can you talk more about that and like maybe your website and stuff? So if people um, want to, I guess, get trained by you and learn and basically how to be more self reflective and tools and stuff, can you uh, just share about that and what your courses are about? You know what, Joshua? What I'm going to say, I, I, I don't want to use this platform to market my stuff. Like I want, if people want to learn about, you know, living and dying, first and foremost, go visit a hospice. Go volunteer in a hospice. You know, like go learn, you know, go take the opportunity to give the most precious thing you have to somebody who's going to take their last breath possibly with you or talk to you about them taking their last breath. There's, there's a lot of hospices in the area. Go visit those programs. Um, that's what I would advocate for people. You know, I, I'd really, I really want people to, to, to be in the field and to bring more people to, to this line of work. One, because it's what we have a, not a, not a, not a tsunami of, of people going to die. We have a glacier, meaning it's in one, you know, in, in one of these years, it's going to hit us. We're going to have 10,000 dying people on our hands, 50,000 dying people on our hands and nowhere near the services. So we're going to need as many people as possible in the field. And then, I think that can change society. So I would recommend people look up your local hospice and go get the training and go volunteer. And then if you want to learn more about death and dying, just look up Rami Shami somewhere on the internet and uh, you could come and uh, spend some time with us. No, that, that's a great point. And I, I like what you said. It, it reminded me of a time I used to, um, there was a short period where I had uh, read to a bl uh, blind person uh, with CNIB. So I went to um, a nursing home. It wasn't a, a hospice, but it was a nursing home. And so I read to this lady and she was around 90 years old. So she was starting to kind of get into the later years. But I remember walking in and I had gone, I, I was going twice a week uh, for about 45 minutes at a time. And we're walking in and, you know, the place, it smelled a little bit of urine and, you know, some gross smell and you go in and there's, you know, you walk by and uh, it, the, the noises and the sounds and it's, it's not the most comfortable place. You know, I went in there and she had Alzheimer's. So, uh, I remember I'd, I had to keep repeating things and I re would even repeat the story that I'd read, but this lady, all she wanted was for me to read to her about uh, world war one. 
um, because she was British and, you know, brought back a lot of memories of her childhood. And even though there was like, you know, it's uncomfortable, you go there, you know, you're traveling, whatever, whatever, smells aren't great. The thing is, I took away so much from that experience and from that uh, wonderful lady, you know, and she ended up passing, uh, I think, a couple months into it. But it was just such a good experience. And there was so much value in reading this story. You know, this person who essentially was near dying just wanted to hear these words about her childhood and bring back memory and just the fact that i could bring a little bit of joy into this person's life it meant so much and so i think that's great that you brought up that hey just go out there go out to a hospice go out to a place do a little volunteering and and see how that can impact your life yeah yeah sean if i can ask you what did what did you said about um uh, you took away so much what did you take away well you know you're sitting with the individual you're seeing what they're going through. They're in a bed. There's a twinkle in the person's eye. I could tell that she hadn't, she didn't get a lot of visitors. Um, so that was one thing that, hey, here's someone here who's reading to me. And again, she would comment every now and then like, oh, my dad used to have a horse. Or, oh, I remember when we were going through the war and the bombs were coming down. And all what she was giving back to me was, was so, I don't know, it was uplifting. And it just made me feel really good. That, that I could connect to someone who I would have never have had this conversation with this lady, never before. It's a 90-year-old person, you know, in a bed. I don't, I don't really talk to, you know, people like that normally. But this was that type of moment where I could and we could bond. Even though I'm very different from her, she's very different from me. So, so you know, it was a takeaway that I had. And you know what? That's it, Sean. I mean, when we talk about fears, people have a fear for a great part of it is that dying or illness will reside in isolation and loneliness. You're absolutely right. People die of loneliness before they die of their disease itself. You know, and, and to be able to be with somebody, as you so eloquently, so articulate in the way you described it, there's, there's a gift in that. There's, there's a building of connection and community. You, know, you, you truly learn the authenticity of relationship and, and connectivity with another human being when you can bridge those, those aspects of life and death. And it's interesting you use the word passing, and I just want to, <laughs> to highlight that because we, we soften it, but actually it, it really is what it is, which is dying. And, uh, and uh, good on you that you had that experience. I, I wish more people would have that experience from an anonymous perspective to go out and, and, and read to somebody or be with somebody. And, and we, it teaches us how to connect, right? In this society, I find we, we've become so disconnected with social media and internet and, and iPads and iPhone, whatever. But, you know, this work really learn, teaches us how to, to overcome that and, and use our innate abilities to connect with another human being. Yeah, thank you. And, and it, look, it opened the door. I haven't, I haven't done that since, but I know I will in the future. I know that I'm, I'm comfortable doing that now. And I, I would love to in the future find a different individual go go out and help uh, somebody else who's going through that um so you know a great experience and again like that's something that it's the basics right and and that, i think that's what you're t- teaching everybody here and that's what you're you're pretty much saying is that look we got to work on the basics first before we can progress absolutely and it begins in our in our family cores it begins with ourselves it begins with our own self-reflection about uh living and dying i mean we, everybody you know i've heard it so many times Sean and Joshua, oh, I don't have time. You know, I'm so busy. I don't have time to self-reflect. Everybody has time to go shopping. We're at, you know, we're, we're at the mall today and it was absolutely packed. Well, if you got a half an hour, an hour to go to the mall, you have a half an hour just to sit and self-reflect on your, on your, on your inevitability of your life and teach that to, to, to your family and your friends and, and have discussions. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, gentlemen. It took my father 25 years to step into a hospice, but when he did, I tricked him actually getting into getting him into the doors because I was a bit of a shithead and I got him in and then I, I gave him a tour of our residential hospice, which is Dorothy Lay when I worked at Dorothy Lay Hospice. He left and when I came home that night, he had an envelope for me and he says, here's an envelope of donation for the work you do. I was like, what's this, dad? And it was 500 bucks because he says, I never understood what you did. I never understood why it's so important. He says, the place was so full of love and so full of real people and so full of caring I understand now why you do what you do. And could you imagine if we had our homes like that, you know, and then that all begins with, you know, a self-reflective journey of, of what we are and, and how we'll end up going. Wow. It's so beautiful um, to hear that. And for your dad to, to finally, I guess, see a glimpse of, you know, 
what draws you towards the place. And a lot of times people don't know until they need it, right? And same thing with brief and support. They don't care until they need it. And then they're like, oh, this is amazing. I'm glad you guys are here. And so it seems like, so did your dad die? No, actually, my father, he came came to drop off some materials and he wanted me to meet him in the front. And I said, uh, Dad, you got to come inside. I can't come outside. I, I, mean, I lied. I said, I can't come outside. I'm on duty. I said, you got to come inside the doors and, and drop it off at the front desk. And then I told the, the volunteer at the front desk at the hospitality desk, I said, can you just entertain my dad and keep him in the building so he can feel it viscerally so he could, you know, absorb it by osmosis. But actually, gentlemen, just to tell you, it's interesting now how my journey goes is, uh, uh, my father went back to Israel, his homeland, uh, a week and a half ago, and my mother and I had a strong conversation about it because we both feel he went back to die. He wants to die on his on his home turf, and and that's his autonomy in choosing that, and it's quite a struggle. I mean, for for him to to look at death, and I think when he when he realized what I did for a living, he came to the hospice. It started to get him to talk and think, and and I push him a lot about you know questions about what he wants when when his time comes and. I think it helped um, solidify a reason why he he took off and went back to Israel to visit his family because he feels like his time he's palliative. I mean he's he's been palliative for ten years, right? We could be we could be dying for a very long time, uh, but no, he's not he's not dead yet. No. <laughs> wow, yeah, because when you were telling the story, I thought he was you're tricking him in to actually get a bed because <laughs> he was dying. No. But <laughs> that's interesting. Wow, now we know your games that you play. <laughs> But they're for a benefit, so I like that. I like that. <laughs> no, it was completely a social piece. It had nothing to do with getting a bed, and and you know, I just to even speak to that. Um, to to get a bed, you know, to get a bed in a residential hospice, you have to be very, very fortunate. It's it's tough. I mean, most people die in hospital. Most people want to die at home, or in a home like setting. Most of them die in hospital and in unhome like settings or in long term care. So. To get a bed in a residential hospice, it's a, it's really a lottery, and uh, but it's it's a it can be a very beautiful death, you know. And I definitely can use the term beauty and, and death in the same sentence because I've seen it even in pain and suffering, even when people are vomiting their own fecal matter and 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 you know they're bleeding from their orifices, you know you just you see you see something that is just inexplicable. I can't even begin to describe it to you when when you bear witness to people how they endure suffering and how they. Sometimes, gentlemen, sometimes, not in every case, sometimes how they shine, you know, it's just, it's really something. I just, I love the shit out of this work, I got to tell you. Wow, no, I'm, I'm glad you do because, you know, you need people like you to start talking about it, to challenge people's thoughts on it, to, you know, to, to move the culture forward and to, to help this, the aging population, the baby boomers that are coming, they're going to need our support um, and they're going to need, you know, us to sit with them as, as they're dying. And so I guess my, one of my last things before we get into the dream stuff is you sit with so many people and so many people, and you've done so much work, you, I'm, I'm guessing you, you get attached to these people um, or develop a bond in some way. Do you grieve them when they die? Like, how does that work for you? Because I know a lot of people, when it comes to the, I know I realize in the breathing field is uh, they don't want to get attached to someone that's going to die because they might have to feel that grief. Um, so can you speak on that? You know, uh, Joshua, that's something that I do teach. When I do teach in hospices and in my own in my own consulting, that's something I do teach. It's about you recognize the loss before you have the loss, right? And you recognize and permission yourself to uh, mourn the loss before it comes. So what I mean by that is that you permission do uh, permission the the future, right? That you are recognition recognizing that there's going to be a loss. And I'm going to grieve it, meaning it's okay that I get attached to some degree because otherwise there's no, I, I really don't believe anybody is 1000% empathetic. We do get attached. But if we recognize that we are going to get attached and we allow ourselves to grieve that which we get attached to, the attachment is, is um, how can I say, it's not as, and it's not as concrete, it's not as intertwined with the person's journey because you recognize that you're going to grieve it. Yes, I, I've grieved almost everybody that I've, I've, uh, I've served. But I think when you talk about grief, man, like we, we, we look at grief as only to do with death and dying, right? But we're not taught, and this is something else I'd love to bring to schools, we're not taught to grieve everything in our lives. We grieve when we grow a little, get out of adolescence. We grieve when we leave puberty. We grieve when we have a breakdown in a marriage. We grieve when we lose an artifact. We grieve when it's, you know, a loss of seasons or a loss of, of, of health. If we teach ourselves to grieve, and permission ourselves to grieve 
every aspect of our loss, then anything we become attached to, we automatically have a built-in mechanism to cope and manage it because we know how to grieve. And I think that's where the, really the challenge is. In our line of work, for sure. And, you know, gentlemen, I've sat with, like I told you, many, 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 many people, but I've never, I've never really been rocked. I've never been, because I recognize that there is a loss coming and anything that, it's also self-reflective practice, anything that I get tied up in or start to get tied up in, I know it's my own, meaning there's something within me that's attaching to this for my own benefit. Right there, there's a, there's a personal check. There's a self-awareness to go, hey, what's going on here? Why is this moving me more than someone else? And then that's when I recognize that my own needs are need to be either addressed from a self-care perspective or that there's some kind of vicariousness that's happening that I'm not aware of. And that's, that's also a gift of the work because you develop a depth of self-awareness of your stuff. Yeah, that's 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 pretty awesome. It seems like there's a there's a real elasticity there. You're allowing yourself to kind of grieve when the moment comes by, and you're not preventing it where it builds up and it becomes a block, and then you gotta kind of purge it in a different way. But just hearing about that, it's just it's just amazing. And a question that I actually had in mind was, do you have any or have you had any dreams of the people that you've sat with and watched to die and pass away? You know, I, I, I'm such a, I told Joshua, I'm such an, I had a Greek dream this past week about a friend and I should have wrote it down, but I was so busy with, cause we're about to open our hospice that I, I didn't think. And then, you know, and, and I, I've had dreams definitely of a couple of people who had come back and, uh, and, and, you know, just talked to me in my dream or, you know, had some kind of conversation. And, and one in particular was a gentleman that I cared for, for about, um, six months and, he he really suffered as a quote unquote as he, he said as a son like a son of a bitch. In the end, before he died, he he looked at me. He goes, "You are my son," and I never understood what he meant by that until I debriefed with his wife after he died. Was that his son had been estranged because of his father's how he had raised him? He was very abusive, and then when he got sick, he felt he deserved it, and you know his son had just you know brushed him aside, and so he 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 bestowed me as his surrogate son even though I was only a once a week visitor as a volunteer, he's a gentleman that I did have a, a grief dream about and remember very, very vividly, you know, him coming and, and talking to me in the dream and not necessarily saying I'm okay, but he was checking up on me, which was, which was very powerful for me. Very, very powerful. I don't know what it meant. I didn't, I didn't really get into the psychological esoteric stuff about it. I just said, you know what? I think that for me was, was just in alignment with the work. It was part of the grieving process for me, for sure, because I did, I did grieve his loss. And, and, uh, and I, think that, I think sometimes the block in, in the process of grieving our losses can either manifest in a dream or can actually block a dream from coming. So when I, when I had that dream, I was, I was, I was quite, uh, quite ecstatic. Oh, God, it was a positive dream. And I'm really curious because you've only known him when he was ill. So was he healthy in the dream or was he in like a hospital setting? He was sick in the dream. He oh, was, yeah. That's an amazing point, Joshua. He was, he was sick but healthy. So uh, like emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, he was very healthy. Physically, he, was, he still looked the same except with clothes on. So he's had the ascites and he had the scrotal sac and he, he, was, he was still dying of liver and, and kidney cancer. But he, was, he had vitality, which was so interesting, right? For me, like if I'm going to just sort of play with that a little bit, for me, I saw that vitality in his dying. I was like, this man is so vital. He's so powerful. And yet he can't get, even get up to go to the bathroom. So I saw that in the dream. You know? And I see that a lot in the work that we do, the vitality of the human spirit as contrasted by the decaying of the body as they, as they live and die. Wow, it's so interesting. Ah, oh, man. That's so cool. Like, it just, uh, just you know, makes me think and makes me just you know, want to do like, more research with people who work with the dying to sort of hear their dreams that they have. Wow. It's, it's very interesting that he was sick, but it was like a positive dream. That's so cool. I love your work, Joshua. I love what you do, man. Like, you know, you and I connected the first time you, I heard about you. I'm like, ding, 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 ding. You know, people need to know what you do. And I'm, I'm so excited that both of you just have this podcast that you can bring this awareness to, to people because you know, that's, that's kind of where it starts, right? And in, in, in demystifying even the discussion of this aspect of, of uh, you know, of, of dreams and, and thoughts and feelings. They're all one and the same in my mind. So, and I, I like the fact that I could hear it in your voice, how all of a sudden you, you, you turned on pretty good. Like, you're like, whoa, this is, this is cool stuff. And that's how I feel about 
uh, death and dying. That's why I love this work. It's still a mystery, right? Like there's so much that's a mystery, especially dreams. And I think one thing that I've learned and I'm sure Joshua's learned now doing this podcast is the experiences are so different. And I think there's so much more that we have to learn about it. Um, that's the main thing is, is, you know, it's, it's not done and, and figuring out more and understanding what these dreams mean or what this loss is meaning for you and how important it is to incorporate, you know, uh, death and loss into your life. Um, you know, think about, you know, just as you were speaking, I was just thinking about all these people you've touched, you've been there for them in one of the most, uh, in, in one of the most times of their life where they need it the most, you know, these people pass and you're the person that's, that's such a gift. That's such a like tremendous for you as an individual to take that with you moving forward and say, you know, even though I didn't know this person their whole life, but that three months that I knew them, I something simple, whatever it is, meant so much for that person that, you know, the mouth was dry and you got him a glass of water. Like That is an incredible idea for me. I can't even wrap my head completely around it, to be honest. Well, Sean, I mean, it's reciprocal, right? Like, you oftentimes family are present right in in somebody's journey however they're not present they can't be present they're they're experiencing anticipatory loss loss so for us to be that you know a, a lot of times when the when the house is burning you know i.e somebody's dying everybody's running the other way because they want to remember the person as they once were and they don't know what to say to them you know i was teaching last uh, last wednesday to, to my class at joshua Creek carriage arts center I just want to put a plug for there for them because they're just an incredible, incredible organization, incredible institution. It's just, anyway, so we're teaching. And one of the gentlemen was talking about, you know, a friend who died and we looked on Facebook and they had, everybody was like, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. We all boundary our languaging and nobody speaks the person's name, let alone ask about dreams. I mean, I love the fact that you folk, you guys are doing this because you know, like it's, it's, it's a, it's a portal into even just creating the discussion from a different angle. I mean, we gotta, we gotta just get talking about this a lot more from every Avenue, either before dying, after death, from dreams, from, from adolescents, from children, from schools. We gotta, we gotta have a, and I love one of you gentlemen use this word. We have to have to have an elasticity in the change in the culture of how we view life and death. And in that way, I think we can actually change fabric of society yeah you know we definitely appreciate your support with the work that we're doing uh here and you know the research i'm doing and i think you just need people to understand like the benefit of it because you said it's uh there's roadblocks along the way and when people see something in in you or in your work and how it can improve society you know that's a beautiful beautiful feeling um that you're not alone you know like uh People will come too if it's if it's right. People will keep coming to you and wanting to learn more. And I think just by asking, say like by sitting with the dying, for me, it's like asking about these dreams. You get a a window in people's lives that you wouldn't normally have. Like I'll ask random strangers, like at the grocery store or in line or whatever where I am, if they have a tattoo, memorial tattoo or something. We start talking about like their deceased loved one, random stranger, right? And they're so appreciative because. They, you tell they want to tell the story. They want to share more about their loss, and the people around them just aren't there anymore. And like that's the sad part. So as much as like in doing the grief dream stuff, it's just another way to talk about their loss that people have forgotten about in, in some way. Or, and so, yeah, man, I appreciate all the all the support you're giving uh, giving us. And you know, we support the work you're doing. And uh, I know it's another episode to talk about dreams of the dying because I know they have uh, their own experiences. Uh, when they're facing death, but yeah, we uh, we definitely appreciate it, and we I, I loved having you on the show. And you had so much knowledge, and I know we just skimmed the surface um, about that stuff, but I know you won't plug it, so I'll plug it. He has workshops, people, <laughs> and so if you're around the, uh, the Mississauga area, you know, check out his site. I'm guessing they're on there. Um, as much as he doesn't want to uh, talk about it too much, you know please do, you know, please look into that. And if you're available, check it out. And I know he has, he has a couple workshops actually. And I'm guessing they'll be coming out every couple months or so. So if you're in the neighborhood, you know, check it out, learn from one of the greats. Um, Cause I know he had a lot of mentors, um, but you know, hopefully he can mentor you to become more self-aware uh, about your own life and to be able to just take, see a new perspective on your own life, but also the people around you. And it's just becoming more, as Sean likes to say, 
tribe-like in the sense that we just care for each other. It's a, it's something we got away from uh, along the way. So Rami, thank you so much. But before we go, I'm not going to forget this. <laughs> I almost forgot, but I won't forget. So if you could have a dream tonight, <laughs> one dream of someone who passed away or died uh, at the at the hospice, um, who would you want to have in that dream? And could you describe that dream for us? Before I tell you that dream, I do want to just say one thing. I mean, my work is anecdotal, right? There isn't much research to it. I mean, there is on the higher scope. But what I love about what you're doing, Joshua, is the fact that it is research-based. It is irrefutable, right? And that's very important for a very cerebral society, for a very cognitive-focused society. So good on you for doing that. And with respect to a dream, <laughs> um, a dream I would want to have is to, uh, to rejoin, to meet um, an F-4 pilot, a Phantom 4 pilot who fought in Vietnam. And uh, to have him come to my dream and uh, let's have a chat. I want to chat. I want to ask him more about, you know, what his experiences were, what he saw. And, and I, think, I think that's, I would love to have a grief dream about a loss of youth, a loss of innocence, a loss of a generation. And um, what was it like to die now and not back there in the war? That's interesting. And so what age would you want him to be? 21. Hmm. And you want to be the age you are now? Yes. Cool. That's pretty cool. I like that. No, it's, uh, it's amazing. And, you know, it's fascinating to think about the, the people that we could actually have that conversation with in their dream. And hopefully you can have that dream uh, at some point in your life. You know, speaking of dreams, Joshua, you reminded me because Remember you asked me and I said I had, a, I had a grief dream. I did have a grief dream this week. And the fact that, you know, I don't know if you played a mind trick on me or something like that because you're smart enough to do that. Uh, but I remember the dream I had on Wednesday. And it was, the, the dream was, and it's incredible how somehow you got into my subconscious mind and you got it out. The dream was that I, you know, I've been giving a lot of my life, 30 years of my life, I pretty much donated to society and to the dying and what have you. And somebody from my past, the people I had served had come back and had given me something like a like a wallet or, or something in the dream itself and I don't remember opening it I just remember feeling in the dream saying wow somebody gave me something and that's 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 the grief dream that I had but the person who gave it to me was already dead dude that's cool <laughs> that's you pulled that out somehow I don't know how you did that but you did it just now and I was like you told me about wanting a grief dream, and that was the grief dream I had on Wednesday. And I remember writing my girlfriend Lisa saying, I had the coolest dream, and then I couldn't remember what the dream was. Wow, that's interesting. You had a block that was unleashed on the podcast. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Boom! <laughs> that's so cool. That's so cool. And I think the whole episode you're talking about the gift, right? The gift that they all give you. Yeah. You know, and it's just that symbolistic of, you know, it seems like that, right? Like giving you a wallet, usually in our society, it's sense of value. Yeah, absolutely. See, I didn't even read into it. I'm just like, wow. And if you, if you I'm sure you folks come up with names for your podcast, but the, a lovely name for this would be The Gift. Mm, I like that. No, I really do. And even just talking about wallets. Have you ever lost a wallet? No, never. When people lose wallets, they freak out because their whole life's there, right? A lot of people have their license, they have their credit cards, they have everything, you know, to identify who you are. Exactly. And like, yeah, it's like without a, like now it's like more of the iPhone or the phone, you lose that, like people go crazy. And to like get it back, like, wow, that's, that's so interesting. I could go for hours talking to you about this dream, but uh, I just want to thank you for sharing it. And uh, I'm glad it came back up. Um, and you know, that's, that's the power of the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I really appreciate your time today, gentlemen. If you need anything for me in the future or information you want me back whatever you like i'm at your service absolutely well we got to bring you back for sure um you know i i just want to say thank you i think you know people like you are really motivating for me and i'm sure joshua black as well because you know you get to see individuals like you that are in the field doing it pushing the agenda pushing society further um i want to come check you out in mississauga this new place that you guys are doing and you know it's just it's so great to hear and it brings a smile to my face. And again, we keep 
doing these interviews with these amazing people like you and, and it just it just it adds to everything you know it gives me optimism and it gives i'm sure a lot of other listeners optimism hope for the future that hey we can learn from our mistakes and you know in the future we all want to i want to see a bright future where members of our society are, are, are treated you know with respect and dignity especially uh during their when they're dying uh plain and simple so thank you Raymond, for coming on um just again real pleasure thank you gentlemen i really appreciate it and uh you uh, you guys do great work so keep it up thanks and just uh if someone wanted to look at your site uh i know you have two could you just share those absolutely joshua absolutely um so i have a a, ba- a consulting site which is a lot of my courses and, and education and workshops across the province and that's just simply my name, www.ramishami.com. And then the other one is uh, specifically for death education, and that's www.thecourseatthecenter.com. And that's the one with my course, uh, Learning to Live by Listening to the Dying. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for say, like just being you and finding it in yourself to go on this journey with the dying and I get just allowing yourself to, to change, you know, like allowing yourself to grow through the process. Cause you know, like that's one of those things that when I look at you, that's what I see. I see someone that's not afraid to change. And so many, so much of the time people just try to stay the same, but you're okay with changing and realize there's always growth uh, to occur. And you know, if someone pulls on that, they said the dying, you look at that, you know, and you see as a gift that they gave you. So amazing uh amazing life you've lived so far i can't wait to one day you know be able to sit with you while you're dying oh it would be an honor man you can ask me all about the dreams you want by all means and i hope i can come back on your uh, your podcast after we open this hospice for the for the homeless and and tell you all about it but you guys are awesome and and uh, you enjoy the rest of your weekend thanks and so just to to wrap up uh our stuff is uh, the griefdreams.ca website. If you want to go there, you can learn everything you want to know. Well, you can't really learn everything you want to know, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> there's a special fee for that. Nine years of post-secondary school. Um, but what you can do is figure out my, uh, <laughs> my contact information, ask questions. Um, but if you're on there, you'll see other links to the podcast, to the Facebook group to uh, Instagram, stuff like that. Uh, a couple of research articles are on there and a newsletter. So if you're into the topic, feel free to check that out. Um, other than that, there's another, there's a full day workshop going on on May 26th, also in Kitchener, Ontario. And I got, it's 5.5 continuing education credits. And it's just going to be a good time. It's going to be the longest uh, talk I've done uh, on this subject. And, you know, I'm really excited for that. So more information on that, just go to the website under presentations. You'll see everything on that. Um, and what we always love to say in the podcast, uh, I know you're waiting for it with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.